My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Wendy Goldsmith and Drew Oya Jay. The current federal conservative government certainly did not invent attacks on public services. In fact, the single biggest assault on them was probably the 1995 federal budget delivered under the Chrétien Liberals, and you can make a good case that the attacks started even earlier than that. But the Harper Conservatives have, in this age of global austerity, carried such attacks forward with an unprecedented vigor and ideological resolve. Despite that, though, such issues have occupied less space in public discussion during the current federal election campaign than many had hoped, in large part because of the most blatant and awful deployment of racism in modern Canadian electoral history by the incumbent Conservatives, but also because the differences among the major parties are smaller on this issue than might have been the case in earlier generations. Yet as the election clock ticks down, there are groups out there working tirelessly in the closing weeks of the campaign to give voice to the simmering anger that is indeed present among many ordinary Canadians at the way cuts, privatization, and the imposition of the logic of the market have been used to attack the imperfect but substantive mechanisms that have been built over decades for us to meet urgent needs and to foster equality. One group insistently raising this issue is Friends of Public Services. Friends of Public Services has only been around for a few months. It sprang out of a generalized sense of the urgency of campaigning against austerity and in favor of public services, and out of a sense of both crisis and opportunity specifically produced by Canada Post's plan to abolish home delivery, likely as a prelude to privatizing much of the postal service, and the growing but fragmented resistance to that plan in communities across the country. After a rapid, intense process of strategizing and organization building, the group is focusing on supporting, reinvigorating and providing infrastructure, materials, and social media support to local grassroots campaigns with a particular emphasis on the very direct threat of the end of home postal delivery supported by the governing Conservatives. In the longer term, the group hopes to catalyze conversation and action focused not only on defending public services that currently exist, but on improving, strengthening, and radically democratizing services such that they can more successfully realize the vision of meeting needs, redistributing wealth and power, and knitting a supportive social fabric. Wendy Goldsmith and Drew Oya Jay are staff with Friends of Public Services. They talk with me a bit about public services and the attacks on them in general, about the planned cuts at Canada Post and resistance to them, about their organization and its initial high-energy campaign, and about what a transformative vision that centers public services might look like. I spoke with them by Skype from London, Ontario and Montreal, Quebec, respectively. And please note that the connection with Jay was a little shaky initially, but the sound quality clears up quickly. Hi, my name is Wendy Goldsmith. I am an organizer with Friends of Public Services, and I'm also an organizer with Londoners for Door-to-Door -door Saving Mail Delivery Service across Canada. 
I'm Drew Oyajay. I'm a longtime organizer with a lot of different groups, most recently with the United Against Austerity campaign, Smart Change, and now with Friends of Public Services. So Friends of Public Services was started to meet a really specific need, but with a longer-term vision. That specific need was to save the Postal Service, basically. The most immediate thing that we're dealing with there is the massive cuts to door-to-door delivery and the eventual phasing out of door-to-door delivery which means thousands of jobs are going to get cut, but it also means lots of people are going to have to go walk to get their mail. But the longer-term horizon of that is that what we're looking at is a real effort to fatten up the profit margins of Canada Post for an eventual privatization of the Postal Service. So in the short term, what we're looking at is really just trying to save door-to-door and also use that as a way to try to prevent conservatives from getting back into power. So on a really tangible level, that means there's a lot of people who are angry about losing their door-to-door And they also just happen to be losing it as the elections are happening. So it's really ripe as an election issue, but we're also looking longer term. I think what at least some of us hope to do is to look at how we can actually create public services that are not just run like a company that happens to be owned by the government, but actually are public in their daily operations. So looking at stuff like worker community co-management, for example, or starting from the perspective of, okay, we have this huge logistical network that's owned by the people, basically. How could we use that for all kinds of useful, socially valuable things and not just as a way to try to turn a profit every year? And so all kinds of things come to mind, right? Like helping people with their communications. Postal banking has been floated as a way to provide services to people who don't have access to them in rural areas. Certainly the Postal Service can play a huge role in helping to distribute smaller publications or independent media. So there there are huge socially valuable things that can be done by a postal service that we're not even talking about yet. And that's because we're generally limited to the paradigm of thinking of it as a private company that happens to be owned by the state as opposed to a, you know, social service that's owned by the people and that we can do whatever we think is socially useful with. Friends of Public Services, I should add, is a totally new organization. The whole thing has come to be in the last three months So starting in July, and I think we actually established it as an organization in August, figured out a strategic plan for the election and got everything up and running, but with this longer term intention as well. The board consists of two retired postal workers and two other community organizers. One of them is from Acorn Canada, Judy Duncan, who's an expert on canvassing and doing this kind of community organizing on a tangible level. And then at the staff level, it's myself and Wendy, who's obviously very experienced with the Londoners for Door-to-Door campaign that's been going on. Some people might argue that while we do indeed need services of some kind to exist, they don't particularly need to be public services. Tell me why that part of the phrase is important. Why is it important that services be public? I think it's all about equality and uniformity of access. If you use the private sector as a delivery mechanism or if you use NGOs or nonprofits, you're not going to get even coverage. So, you know, somebody might provide an excellent privately run school or daycare in one area that somehow gets funding and is somehow cheaper, but the next town over might not have that at all. And there's no way of really ensuring those standards across the board. And so I think what public services do is they say, okay, we're going to ensure that there are basically social rights that get implemented across the board, that people get to access this or that service everywhere, and that everybody has the right to that service. And obviously there are going to be discrepancies, but I think it puts things in the territory of, okay, it's actually possible to make sure that there's some level of equality in that. 
So I think that's one of the main reasons they need to be public. Another reason is that it's just way more efficient, and it's a direct redistributive mechanism. You can say, we're going to take money from the 1%, basically, and we're going to put it into something that's going to benefit everybody. And we know it's going to benefit everybody. We know that the jobs are going to pay this much, and we have a higher level of control over the quality of those services. Whereas if you leave things to the private sector, the market economy is extremely good at finding profit margins and leveraging power in order to redistribute income toward more inequality, to basically concentrate wealth in the hands of the few. So you constantly need to be fighting with that. And what we've seen overall in the last 30, 40 years is an onslaught against all the ways that we have as a society of redistributing income. And so that involves, to a very large degree, a tax on the public service and attacks on things that happen outside the market in terms of delivering services. Not to put too fine a point on it, but it's basically just a battle between the market and things outside of the market. When we have public services that are fairly distributed and that are based on sound policies, things that happen outside of the market are far more fair, far more equal, and more likely to generate outcomes of more equality and not the sort of concentration of wealth that we see with the market system. And I think there are a lot of hidden costs to these so-called public-private partnerships. Which are, as the name suggests, a model of delivering a service or producing or maintaining infrastructure of some kind that involve a partnership between a government and one or more corporations. That really haven't been examined or have been made clear to the public. You know, it sounds like a good deal, but in the end, if something goes wrong, someone else in the private sector is responsible, and how do they respond to that? We're talking about a safety and security network for the most vulnerable people in our country. And I can tell you that the woman that I sat with on the corner of Dundas and Richmond in London, Ontario, of Anishinaabe descent, who was in tears asking me, why, Wendy, why did they do this to me? Why did they take my children? She needs protection for her and her family as they struggle through some of the most serious social emotional challenges that are facing Canadians today. And if we don't have a sound base from which to respond and that it is equitable, as Drew says, equitable across all of our socioeconomic status and situations, then I think we're really in trouble as a country. And part of the redistributive mechanism and part of what's been specifically targeted by the Harper government has been mechanisms, basically government agencies and government funding for advocacy for women, for example. So the court challenges program that creates a way to make women more and more equal economically and socially in this country, that was cut, that was targeted. Programs that help residential school survivors to heal and recover, those things were targeted and cut things that help Indigenous communities become more healthy and get health programs in place to improve conditions on reserves, those were targeted and cut. And so really you see what the minimal redistributive mechanisms that we have in place to help the people who have borne the brunt of the negative effects of our economic development, those are the things that are being targeted and cut. And so in terms of connecting it to the overall agenda, I'd say that privatization generally follows a pretty clear pattern. You mess something up until it becomes dysfunctional, and then you say, oh, well, the solution to this being dysfunctional is that we need to privatize it. Some kind of private company will run this better. And then you sell it off at bargain basement rates to a company, and then they degrade services further and take advantage of whatever monopoly they've been guaranteed in order to make bigger profits. And so I think that's what's happening with Canada Post, and that's what we're going to see with public-private partnerships, which Justin Trudeau has pledged his allegiance to, and it's what we see with the privatization of Ontario Hydro or Hydro One. So across the board, I think we're seeing this 
taking things that are valuable, that are happening outside of the market, that are redistributing wealth and turning them into something that exploits people, redistributes wealth in the opposite direction toward unequal distribution and provides a lesser service. Tell me about the initial founding of Friends of Public Services. Where did the impetus come from and how did it all happen? It came from a few different places. One is one of the people we work with, Michael Goodman, I think, saw a really clear opportunity that there's this huge attack that's happening basically during an election period, and it's affecting people directly. And there are also all these people who are used to going door to door who are also affected. And so you don't have to think too hard to see how that could turn into a really potent political force, especially around the election, but in a long term way as well. CUPW is also, I would say, consistently one of the most radical unions in Canada and, and certainly willing to think outside of the box. And I think that's been an, another huge part of the equation is that on their end, CUPW has been going through some significant changes and shifts in direction and are really, I think, coming to terms with the fact that they're under a major attack and that their existence is being threatened. If the Harper government can pull off this privatization of the post office, then their days are numbered. And so I think you're seeing people willing to be a lot more bold and to think bigger picture about how to fight back against that as a result. Whereas I think other unions are often more sectoral in their approach or a little more conservative in terms of the kinds of things they're willing to take on. And since the evolution of the organization came to be, when we bring the idea out to the community and out to other unions, the response has been overwhelmingly, yes, this is something we need. And so we feel like we're really in a building stage and that support is there for us. So it's been an exciting process that happened in a very, very short time. I would just add that a part of the process was to bring together some longtime activists who also happen to be retired postal workers, Avert Hoogers and Marion Pollock, who are all on the board of Friends of Public Services, and then also Judy Duncan, who's the head organizer at Acorn Canada and has a huge amount of experience doing precisely this kind of door-to-door campaigning. And give me a sense of how this campaign building and organization building is playing out, both in terms of how it's going so far and how you see it moving forward. It's been pretty seat of the pants. We're obviously up against a pretty tight timeline. We only realized that we were going to start this organization in July, and we knew the election was coming this fall. And so we were kind of like, sure, let's create a website, let's create a board, let's start an organization, create a strategic plan and implement it inside three months. That sounds great. So, yeah, basically that's what we've been doing. It's been a little hectic, I have to admit, but we saw that there's an opportunity and we decided to go for it. And so basically what it looks like in practice is creating a lot of relationships with activists on the ground, both in community groups and within CPW locals on the fly, figuring out what kind of resources we can help them with. What that's turned into is a big focus on this brochure that we've created. So we're planning on printing a huge amount of copies of this brochure, tens of thousands, and we're going to distribute those across the country in swing ridings that we've identified. So basically what we did was we looked at all the different ridings in Canada that are going to be close where the Conservatives could be defeated. And we cross-referenced those with all the places where people either have lost recently or will lose their door-to-door delivery service. And we made a list of those places and we're trying to get activists on the ground going door-to-door in those areas, handing out flyers, which connects the Conservative Party to the cuts to door-to-door and also starts to take apart the austerity agenda and start to question that. 
We've been using social media extensively, something that Drew has been working on a lot, making sure that our message gets out there electronically as well as face-to-face has been really critical and has drawn a lot of attention across the country. It must be a challenge to be an organization that's formed at the national level, but that is working to connect with folks on the ground in lots of different communities that are able to do that scale of the work and go door-to-door and hand out brochures and that kind of thing. Well, that's been the challenge, but also, you know, Drew and I have both worked on lots of different campaigns in the past, and this one is the one that galvanizes people. So if I say to somebody, for example, in Saskatoon, hey, we're working on door-to-door, are you guys working on door-to-door? And they say, yes, we've got a local group who's working, and our CBW local is working, let's figure out how we can work together. There have been new connections made and new ways of working together that are occurring, and we're just building on that one day at a time, like really one day at a time, sitting on the phone, using the computer, talking to people, and knocking on doors. And is it your experience that there are already folks who are active on this issue in a lot of the communities that you've been in touch with? Yes, there is. And many times what we hear is that, you know, sometimes communities have started something up and it may have fizzled a little bit, but they're so excited to hear that there's something national happening. They're thrilled to hear our voice. They're thrilled to hear that we want to help them. So it's just adding fuel to an already smoldering fire, if you will. And I believe one of the things that we're doing unintentionally or maybe intentionally is creating activists around the country. I think when you have an activist group on the ground, it takes a pretty hardcore individual to say, all right, no matter what, I'm going to fight for this issue. But I think once you have a national campaign, once you have that umbrella, and once you have materials and a sense of a common direction and the sense that there are a lot of other people out there doing that, that people are a lot more willing to join up and say, all right, this seems like a worthwhile thing to do and I'm going to take part in it. So despite the extremely short timeline that we're working on, we're definitely, I think, seeing some of that. Tell me about the connections that you see between the social media side of the work and the door-knocking, feet-in-the-street side. How are they related, and how do they support each other? I think one that you can do a lot more with a big list of people than you can do without one, certainly. And so I think the online campaign is a really easy first step for people to get involved. So somebody can sign a petition, takes, you know, 30 seconds. And then, you know, it asks them if they want to volunteer. And then if they volunteer, then Wendy gets in touch and we start a conversation. And from there, you can start to say, okay, let's say a thousand people signed this petition. Maybe a hundred want to volunteer. And of those volunteers, maybe 10 are going to be activists who are really get out there and do stuff. But if you can start to get those numbers in different cities, you can start to really create a sense of scale and possibility in terms of creating something that can really get out there and change something and also feel like it's going to change something. So take a situation where someone encounters your social media work somehow or maybe listens to this show. So if they get in touch with you from whatever random Canadian community they live in and say, you know, I think what you're doing is important and I want to get involved, what kind of conversation do you have with them at that point? We're using Nation Builder. And Nation Builder is a piece of software used in putting together campaigns to gather information and in that platform they have an opportunity to let us know how they'd like to be involved further and so then you know if it's writing a letter to the editor if it's getting involved in their local community if it's distributing information they can let us know that we get in touch with them we have a personal conversation with that person whether it's by email or by phone whatever works and go from there 
as we do that, we're also learning about those communities and trying to find out if there's things already happening on the ground that we may not know about, that we should know about. So it's a great organizing tool, and it's the way that we try to build on the skills and abilities that everybody brings to this struggle. And what we find is that everybody has something that they'd like to give. They often don't know how to give. They may be new to organizing. They may be new to speaking up. So it's about connecting people appropriately. And it's a big web that we're working with. But when it starts to come together and we start to find certain connections in various locations that we can start plugging people into, then it starts to light up like the night sky. That's the best analogy I have. So, yeah, that's what we're doing. What are the possibilities for what Friends of Public Services might get up to after October 19th? Yeah, good question. We're pretty focused on the election at the moment. We certainly have floated a bunch of different ideas. We haven't committed to anything yet, except to say that we're going to continue to work on preventing the privatization of Canada Post. I think that's a no-brainer, and that's something that we're definitely going to continue to work on. And we have some ideas about how to do that, how to proceed with that after the election. But obviously, much is going to depend on the political terrain, given that there is a clear division between the parties on this particular issue. You know, it's going to really depend on how things shake down with the vote. The Liberals are promising very little, except to say that they'll put a freeze on any additional cancellations of door-to-door service. The NDP saying they'll reverse it, and the Conservatives are obviously full steam ahead with the current plan. So there's that. And then I think we would like to consider working on other campaigns, but a lot of that's going to have to do with capacity. It's going to have to do with the conversations that we have. And I think there's going to be a period of stock taking where we say, okay, here's what we've done. We went completely all out for three months, kind of came into the world with a bang. And now we're going to take some time to reflect and think about the long term of what the most strategic places are going to be to think about how to create a more democratic and equal society and how that relates to public services. I think that requires a lot of careful deliberation and a lot of conversations with people that we haven't had time to talk to yet. That would be the priority from my perspective. So stepping back a little bit from the election campaign and from Friends of Public Services specifically, what do you think might be needed overall to create an environment, to create a society in which public services are no longer threatened? Yeah, whoa. That's your I last mean, I, question? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not to be too glib about it, I would say capitalism has to either go away or be significantly diminished. I think as long as you have capitalism, as long as you have a market-based economy that accumulates wealth for its own sake and incentivizes that above everything else, you're going to have a tax on the public services. That is going to happen because what capital sees when it sees public services is a potential profit margin that's not as high as it could be and an opportunity to make it much higher by degrading services, paying workers less, and charging more. So really, that's the short answer. I think the longer answer is that we need, you know, one thing that's been interesting about seeing this on social media is that you get these hordes, and I don't use the term lightly, of people, mostly conservative supporters, who are really hostile to the idea of public services and to the idea that somebody might be being paid by the government to do something that helps someone else out. And there's a really alienated, atomized society out there that's been really damaged, I think. A lot of people have been really damaged by the way capitalism functions. So what I think we need to do is really push back against that neoliberal ideology and also understand all the different ways that our institutions that represent us have internalized that. 
I think there's a lot of unions, certainly the NDP, certainly all political parties have internalized this idea that we need to balance the budget above all else, you know, which would be fine in of itself. But then it's like, oh, no, we also can't raise corporate taxes. We also can't tax the banks. We also can't tax the most wealthy. We also can't redistribute income. And so you box yourself into a corner with this neoliberal ideology that says basically you can't do anything. And so I think liberating ourselves from that and creating a context in which there's a shared value that says, no, that's not the only option. There is an alternative. We can redistribute wealth. We can take care of each other as a society, and we can provide good jobs to most people in our society. There's no reason we can't do it for basically everybody. We're like one of the richest societies in human history, and we can do this. And so until we're able to take stock of that and say, okay, that's what we're going to do and create a critical mass of people who are willing to fight for that, that to me is the minimal condition of starting to get to a point where we don't have to worry about our public services being privatized every year. And we can actually work on how to make them more effective, how to use all the free time that we'll have, how to better democratically manage what we do have. In addition to what Drew says, which I completely agree with, I would just add to that that I think one of the most important issues of our time is encouraging and supporting the rise of the divine feminine voice. And by that, I don't mean necessarily and specifically the voice of women, although that is extremely important. And we've seen great evidence of the power of women's voices through Occupy, through Idle No More, and many other initiatives across the country. But the voice of the feminine belongs in all of us. And it's the voice that allows us to think democratically, to think cooperatively, to suspend judgment, to work towards positive change, social justice, and a better world for everybody. So I think that any movement that I will be involved in will include the voice of the divine feminine and the encouragement of women to be able to speak freely from where they are in their place in the world, where they place themselves. And that's really critical. And focusing back on Friends of Public Services specifically, what do you find exciting or encouraging about the way that the campaign has been going? For me, it's the organizing that's going on. Calling Antigonish or somewhere in Toronto, talking to someone who I've never spoken with before, who says, yeah, we're with you. We want to get your brochure out and we want to get your message out and here's our message and this is how we can work together. The community organizing that is occurring as a result of a hideously horrible government is something that is one thing that we can put in a feather in our cap because the organizing that's happening on the ground right now is very impressive, in my opinion. I would just say seeing the response and the enthusiasm from people. And also just when we start to talk about things like austerity and democratizing the public service, just to see just how often people don't balk or say, oh, that's weird or anything like that. They're just like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And so to me, it just feels like, okay, there's a really fertile moment going on here. I don't remember a time when that was as resonant with people. And it feels like we've hit, yeah, a really exciting sort of opening in the consciousness of people. You have been listening to my interview with Wendy Goldsmith and Drew Oya Jay of Friends of Public Services. To learn more about their work, go to publicservices.ca. That's publicservices.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.